0: Good morning. It's good to see you today. It's very good to be here and uh, we feel very blessed to be able to gather together on the first day of the week and and to think about some things regarding Jesus Christ. Nathan couldn't have uh, led a more perfect song to lead us into our lesson because the lyrics of that song really embody what we're going to talk about this morning. There's a phrase from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, a very familiar phrase where it talks about Jesus and it says that he made him to be sin. And when you really think about that phrase, it's, it's sort of hard to grasp that, that God made Jesus to be sin. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For he hath made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. This phrase embodies the idea that we talk about when when we discuss salvation and we discuss the fact that we've been given an exchange, that an exchange has has taken place, that Jesus is made sin and we are made righteousness. Do you notice the last part of that phrase? That we might be made. So Jesus is made something so we can be made something. And what we're made is the righteousness of God in Him. This is so critical. It's not only critical for someone who needs to be saved, but it's critical for someone who is saved to understand what this verse actually means. And so we have to talk about some things, define some things. And one of the things we need to define is what does it mean the righteousness of God? And that English word righteousness and and because of the way that we use words with one another sometimes it confuses us when we read verses because we read them sometimes according to our understanding of a English word and how we use that typically. And so one of the words here that we use a lot is the word righteousness. What does that mean? Well, depending on the context it can mean a lot of different things. So Uh, For one usage of that word, it talks about God is righteous. And we'll talk about that here in a minute. Another usage of that word is he's a righteous man. And what do we mean by that? Well, he's a good man, a righteous man. There are works of righteousness. So works that are good or works that are righteous. But what does it mean when we talk about the righteousness of God? And I think to understand this, we're going to read Romans chapter 4 because this is really a good explanation of what it means for us to be righteous. Because that's where we really want to focus. What does it mean that we're righteous? So Romans chapter 4 verse 6. Notice it says just as David also describes the blessedness of the man. Now listen. To whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. So there's a word that's used here. This is a very important word. In fact it's used over and over In this chapter, it's the word impute. And sometimes it's not translated impute, it's translated reckoned or counted. Uh, We might use the word esteem, and that's what the word means. It means to reckon something as such or to consider it as such. And so when he talks about David and his describing the blessedness of us or someone who has righteousness, notice he uses the word imputes, that God imputes or he counts righteousness toward someone. That's what he talks about with Abraham. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. He didn't say Abraham was righteous or that God made him righteous as though he wasn't righteous and now he is righteous. He says he counted him as such. He esteemed him as such. He considered him as righteous. And I want you to know that today if you're righteous in the eyes of God, it's not because you are righteous. It's because God has counted you as righteous and there's a big difference. You know why? Because there is none righteous. None. Now some have read that and they said, well, that's hyperbole. He's just he's just making a you know outlandish extreme statement so we can understand the unrighteousness of humanity. No, that's not what he's saying. He says there's none righteous, no, not one. No, not one. There's none righteous. You say, well, how can that be? I, I know good people. I know righteous people. I know people who are good and righteous. See, it's it's the way we look at that word. But we have to let the Bible define its own usage of that word. What does he mean? Righteous. It means there's none righteous. There's none good. As Jesus was approached by a man one day, this man asked Jesus, good master, good teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? And so Jesus asked him a question. Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but one. That is God. And again, you might think, well, I know some good people. Why would Jesus say this? Was he being sarcastic? No, he wasn't being sarcastic. I think he was pointing out his own divinity. If you're going to call me good teacher, why would you do that? Only God is good. Well, it wasn't wrong for that man to call Jesus good. Jesus was certainly good. But what's Jesus pointing out? I'll tell you this man had a problem. His view of righteousness was perverted. It was distorted. He didn't know what righteousness meant. And I hope that we'll have an understanding of what righteousness means if we don't before we end our lesson. Because one of the things that he points out here is there's only one that's good. There's only really one that's righteous. And it's not me and it's not you. Because we're not righteous. God is righteous. And if you took the summation of all a man's righteousness, Isaiah describes it in Isaiah 64 and 6 when he says we're all as an unclean thing and all our righteousness are as filthy rags. Now, I'm not going to go into great detail as to what this word renders, but if you look it up in the Hebrew, if you got a Strong's at home, I would encourage you to look that word up. It doesn't mean a rag that's gotten dirt on it. It's something filthy. It's something that was unclean, that there was a law about in the Levitical law that pertained to women, and there was no usage for it. Once it became tainted, the only usage was to burn it. We take our righteousness the summation of our righteousness, and we present it before God. I'll tell you what He sees a filthy rag. Do you think God is impressed by our righteousness? Do you think He's impressed? Are we impressed by our righteousness? We have none. Could you imagine guys taking a box of filthy rags covered with grime and grease and wrapping it up and, and putting wrapping paper in a bow and giving that to your spouse? Good luck with that. She's going to be mad. Do you hate me? <laughs> What did I do to you to deserve this? But yet we think that's a gift to God. Here you are, God. Aren't I good? Aren't I great? Aren't you impressed? He's not. You know why? Because God is good and we're not good. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, I think this helps us identify our problem. 2 Corinthians 10 and verse 12, Not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those, now listen, who are commending themselves, but when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they're without understanding. So think about this. The way that we would use that word, we'd say, well, he's a good person. Well, you have to have some standard to relate the word good to to make that discernment. So we're saying he's a good person. You know why? Because we know bad people. And we look at bad people and we go, well, that's bad. And then we look at somebody who does things that are good and we go, oh, well, that's good. Well, he's obviously in that category. He's not a bad person. He's a good person. Or maybe we look at ourselves and we say, well, I'm not a bad person. I'm a good person. I mean, I'm not a thief. I'm not killing people. I'm not a drug dealer. I'm not doing all these terrible things that bad people do. I'm a good person. You know what he says? Wrong standard. Wrong standard. Because righteous is not I'm better than someone else. It's not I'm as good as I can be. It's not that I have done so many things that God looks at me and says, now you are good enough. That's not righteousness. And I'll tell you, that's not who God is. But when we actually understand what the standard is, that it's not me being better than you or better than someone else, that it's not really a comparative statement toward humanity, it's actually toward God, we start to understand the righteousness of man because God is good by nature. There's one good. He is good by nature. God is the origin of good. Anything good within us comes from God. God is perfectly just. And I want to stress that word Perfectly just. He is fair in every aspect of the word fairness. He is right and righteous in every judgment he makes. He's perfect. He's free from all unrighteousness. See, God doesn't have unrighteousness. We all have unrighteousness. God doesn't have any. He is, I guess, summarized in this word that we use often when we use the word holy. God is holy. He's apart. He's separate. He's sacred. He's pure. He's perfect. He's clean. That's the standard. And and if I look at the world and I see what's going on in the world, I might feel like, well, I'm a good person, I'm a righteous person. But when I view myself in light of who God is, I'll tell you what happens when man does that. Fear and dread. You look at some of the most righteous people in the Scriptures. You look at Moses being in the presence of God. It filled him with fear. You look at Isaiah standing there seeing around the throne of God his goodness and his glory. And Isaiah says, woe is me. I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. Because I'll tell you, if you look at God, you won't feel righteous. Because we're not righteous. All have sinned. Now look and come short of what? The glory of God. That's the standard. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 16. I want us to look at this story. It's probably one of the most, if not the most, familiar story from the Old Testament. The story of Adam and Eve. And God had given them, he commissioned them with responsibility there in that garden. And one of the things that he told them was to dress and keep the garden and that they could eat of all of the trees of the garden. But he said of, uh, of this particular tree, verse 17, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. I find this very interesting. You know, we look around, we see trees, we go, well, that's a peach tree, or that's, a, uh, you know, that's an apple tree, or that's that's how we look at trees well we would never look at a tree and go oh that's that's the knowledge of fruit uh, the knowledge of good and evil tree like how do you why do you call it the why is it that tree why is it called that why did God call it that well because of the impact that it would have on them if they ate it why do you call it that was there something special within that particular fruit that that gave them like this miraculous transfer of knowledge that they didn't possess before i don't think that was it at all but there's a reason why he called it the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And there's a reason why I told them the day you eat of it, you'll die. What happened to them? They ate the fruit. And what does the Bible say happened when they ate the fruit? It says the eyes of them both were open. Now, I want to stop and think about that phrase. Do you think that Adam and Eve up to this point walked around the garden like this? And all of a sudden they eat the fruit and their eyes open up. What does he mean by that? Their eyes were open. He's talking about the eyes of their understanding. Notice the connection. The eyes of them both were open and they knew. They knew. Knew what? That they were naked. What do you think? That they didn't know they weren't wearing anything before then? That they didn't have clothes on? What did they not know? They didn't know it was shameful. They were naked and not ashamed. But now their eyes are open. You know what that means? They see things in a different way. They now have the knowledge of good and evil. Why? Because they ate the fruit. We would say this way, their conscience was awoken. Their conscience was awoken. Everything looks different now. God looks different now. You know what they did now? They hid themselves from God. They tried to cover up their nakedness, cover up their shame. So they make fig leaf aprons to try to cover up what they did. You know why? Because their eyes are open and they're trying to hide that, not only from God, but from themselves. In Romans chapter 7 and verse 9 here, Paul says, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came to life and I died. You say, well, what does this have to do with Adam and Eve? Everything. This has everything to do with Adam and Eve. Now, here's why. There's some people who say that man is born into sin, that when he's born, he's born sinful at birth. He inherited sin from Adam. And because of that, we're all born totally depraved. And I want you to know something, that is not true. And the Bible doesn't teach that. You know why people become depraved? Because they commit sin. They commit sin. And, and God told Adam and Eve, in the day that you eat the fruit, you will surely die. But you know, you read the story of Adam and Eve, they ate the fruit, and then somehow Adam lives to be 900 years old. I thought God said he would die that day. He did. You know what? Adam and Eve, they died that day. He said, don't, I, don't, I don't understand what you mean. Now listen, listen to what Paul says. I was once alive. Do you think Paul's not alive anymore physically? I mean, he's writing this. Obviously, he's alive physically, so that's not what he's talking about. I was alive once apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came to life, and I died. This is the death that Adam and Eve died that day. What was that death? Let me explain it to you this way. What do kids do when they learn to talk? They learn to lie. I mean, they do. That's that's one of the first things kids learn to do when they talk. And they don't even have to talk to lie. You know, when Van was little, he was our only child, and he would get into something and I'd question him about it. I'd say, Did you do that? No, sir. I'm like, well, uh, I didn't do it. Mom didn't do it. So, I mean, it's pretty obvious to us who did this. No, sir, I didn't do that. I mean, that's how we are, right? We we learn to lie. Well, let me ask you a question. Do you think God looked down at my two year old son and said, Guilty? He is guilty. He's a sinner. Didn't you believe that? That God looks at children and places guilt on them, the guilt that will send them to a devil's hell? Do you think that? Nobody thinks that, do we? You know why we don't think that? Because we understand something about kids. Their mental cognizance is not like an adult's. They don't have an awareness. They don't have a knowledge of good and evil. They don't understand the commandments of God. And that's what Paul's explaining here, that I was alive once, apart from the law, but when the commandment came, when I understood what God's law was, then sin, that was already there, that was dormant, was given life see kids sin they sin a lot they lie they covet they're violent sometimes they do things that are against the will of God but you know what God doesn't do he doesn't count it against them he doesn't impute their sin to them you know why because they're still alive sin hasn't killed them like it did Adam and Eve and like it has done most of us but see when the conscience is awoken and we understand God's law you know what the first realization we have at that point is? It's too late. I've already sinned. You see why it's impossible for man to be righteous, to live righteously? Because the time, by the time that we mature enough to understand what sin is, the first thing we'll realize is I've already broken God's law. It's too late. And spiritual death occurs. Luke chapter 18 verse 16, But Jesus called them to him and said, Let the little children come to me, and do not forbid them. For of such is the kingdom of God. You know what Jesus didn't say? He didn't say, get these little sinful children away from me. He didn't say that. He said, let them come to me. For of such are the kingdom of God. See, children have an innocence about them. They have an innocence. But I'll tell you, one day the mind is awakened, the eyes are open, and they'll feel the same weight of sin that you felt in your life. I'll tell you, it'll rock them. It'll cause a lot of the same things that we see happen, Adam and Eve. Fear and uncertainty, confusion. A desperation to hide what we've done. All those things happen. And that is a result of the death that Paul was talking about in Romans 7, 9. So again, I ask the question, who is a good person? In Ecclesiastes chapter 12, as Solomon began to conclude his letter, he says this, Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Now I want to notice verse 14 particularly, where it says, For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good good or whether it be evil. I want you to really think about this phrase. God shall bring every work. How many works? Every work. Did you know that God, because he is perfectly just, will punish every single sin that's ever committed? Did you know that? God will not let one sin go unpunished. You say, well, how can that be? Well, how can it not be? (laughs) That's the question. How can God be perfectly just and excuse certain people's sins but punish some people for their sins? That would be unjust, but that's not how God operates. For God to be perfect, he must punish every sin, every single one. And God will bring every work into judgment, every work with every secret thing. Do you have secrets? You don't have to nod your head. I mean, (laughs) We've all got secrets, right? Things that only we know about ourselves, deeds that we've done that we only know about. Words we've said that maybe only me and someone else knows about. We've all got secrets. Can you imagine, can you imagine if you were standing where I'm at right now and everybody in here knew your secrets? Would you stand up here and say, aren't I a good person? What if today you were standing here and every person in here knew every thought you'd ever had? Would that make you feel good? Me and Toy would move. If you knew everything I'd ever thought, we'd move. I love y'all. I love y'all a lot. And y'all know that. I wouldn't look you in the eye. I wouldn't feel like a good person. I'd feel like scum. I'd feel like trash. I'd be embarrassed. What if everybody knew every word we ever said? We'd probably be apologizing, wouldn't we? If that was really exposed, what if they knew everything we ever did? You know what the truth is? God already knows those things. He knows every one of those things. We don't have any secrets from God. In fact, we're going to stand before Jesus Christ on the day of judgment. And the Bible says of Jesus, there's no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. He's not going to call for witnesses. He's not going to ask Lonnie Loder on the day of judgment if Ian Jones is a good guy. Jesus knows everything we've ever thought, said, and done. I'll tell you, that's somewhat terrifying, isn't it? It's terrifying. In Romans chapter 1, as Paul Begins to talk about a world without God. And make no mistake, that's what he's describing here. A world without God. The first thing he talks about in relation to that world without God is that they begin to worship and glorify man. And to change the truth of God into a lie. And he said being filled with all unrighteousness. And then he starts naming some things. Fornication is the first thing that he mentions here in this list. And, and I don't want to be extremely discreet about this, but I also don't want to be completely open about this. But I, I have a problem when I go and I talk to teenagers who are 18 years old who grew up sitting on a church pew, and he said the word fornication. They say, I've heard that word all my life, and I don't even know what that means. That's a problem with that. And I say, well, that means having sex with someone that you're not married to. They go, oh. And sometimes they say, that's wrong? That's wrong? Yeah, that's wrong. Marriage is honorable and all in the bed undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers, God will judge. Yeah, it's wrong. It's a sin. Anything outside of the marriage bed, anything outside a man and a woman is sinful. And the world says that's not right. No, that is right. God's judgment is right and fornication is wrong. It's sin. Covetousness is another thing that he mentions here in this list. And And you know, it's peculiar that we have sometimes redefined words and their usage in the Bible to make ourselves feel better, but let's not do that. Because I've heard this word be redefined as covetousness is when you want something so bad you're willing to sin to obtain it. Where did we come up with that? That is not what covetousness is. You know what Jesus said in Luke chapter 12? He said, take heed and beware of covetousness for a man's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. And then he tells us a story about a man who built, who, who had a great bu- uh, bumper crop and decided to build bigger barns for himself. You know what he called that? Covetousness. What sin did he commit to obtain? Nothing. It's not about the intent here. It's about greediness. That's what covetousness is. But see, we understand our society thrives off of greediness of not being content with what we have about wanting bigger and better and faster and fancier and shinier. It's called covetousness, and it's sinful. And it's named here in the same list with murderers. Envy, often the driving force of this one right here. You know what? I probably wouldn't want a bigger house and a faster car if I didn't know somebody else already had one. But we're kind of that way, aren't we? Trying to keep up with the Joneses. I I still hadn't met those Joneses. We're not them, but there's some out there. You know what I'm talking about. You walk through their house and you see all their shiny and nice stuff and you go, man, they've got it all together. Do they? Do they really? Don't get caught up in that. That may not be the case. They may have a house full of chaos in here and in here. This one gets every one of us, doesn't it? You ever misrepresented the truth? Been deceitful? What about this one right here? How about this one? Somehow one day we woke up and this one became a virtue. And we teach our children this. We teach them to look up to these sports stars who who can't do anything. They catch a football, and they got to beat their chest and stick their head up in the air like there's something great. You know why? Because we've somehow exalted pride. You know what God says? Six things does the Lord hate, a seven or abomination. The first one in that list, a proud look. Proud look. God's not impressed. You think he's impressed when somebody throws a ball through a net or catches a football? No, we're impressed. He's not impressed by that. God hates pride. Let's be careful. What about this one? Young people, I want you to notice that disobedience to parents is in the same list with murders. You know why? Because sin is sin. What about this one? I don't know that I'm guilty of that. I've been guilty of that one a lot. Lacking compassion for others. Being apathetic toward the suffering of others. And I'll tell you, when I look at this and I look at my own life, I'll tell you, I don't feel like a good person. I'll tell you what I understand. I'm guilty. That's what I am. And I'm going to tell you, so are you. And if we really got what was coming to us, if we really got what we deserved, this is what Paul says at the end of the list. Who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death. Deserving of death. And then he says, not only the same, but also approve of those who practice them. See, that's the wages of sin. It's death. And if we all had God look at us and say, I'm counting your sin against us, I'll tell you what the result of that would be. Death. And that's what we all deserve. Romans chapter 3, verse 23. He says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, that's not the end of the thought. Here's the beautiful part of the thought. He says, Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. There's three terms here I want to talk about for just a moment. And it's three terms that when we read them, we often go, oh, that means you're saved. Well, that is what they mean. You read the word justify, redeem, or propitiation, or or reconciliation, or atonement. We read those words and go, well, that just means you're saved. Well, they do, but there's very specific definitions that are connected with those words that explain what salvation is. So what does justify mean? What does redemption mean? What does propitiation mean? Justify means to make something wrong right. That's what it means. So like say you're doing a Word document, and you look at all your lines and they don't all line up because the sentences are all, they're different words. And so you hit control J, you know what that is? Justify, what's it do to the margins? It goes, it makes them straight. That's what justify means. To make something wrong right, to clear from all guilt. Jesus said, for this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. This is what justify means. It means I'm wrong, and I need to be made right. Let me ask you, how are you going to do that yourself? If you're wrong, how are you going to make yourself right? You have no way of doing that, of accomplishing that. But see, God does, and he does that through the blood of Jesus. He will remove the sin that exists. See, we forget that when we talk about Abraham being justified Apart from works, what do, we, what do we think about Abraham? Well, Abraham was a righteous man. Well, why was he righteous? Because God made him righteous. You know why? Because Abraham was a sinner. Just like you and I are sinners. Abraham was a sinner. Some of his sins are detailed for us in the, New, in the Old Testament. We're all sinners. And we need to be made right. We're not right. We need to be made right. That's what justify means. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14 says, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he himself, that's Jesus, Also took part of the same that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. Now listen. And deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. You know one of the problems with with our understanding of salvation is we use the word saved. And we don't even recognize what that word means. I mean, we'll have arguments about whether or not someone can save themselves. You know that's the most ridiculous statement that you could possibly say, someone's saving themselves. You know why? Because the word save means rescue. You imagine someone saying, rescue yourself. You don't rescue yourself. Rescue implies you are powerless. You need outside help. Someone with more power, more strength, maybe more resources than you have to come and deliver you from whatever bondage or tribulation you're going through. Save means rescue. It means deliver. What's he say here? Jesus delivered us. From what? From our fear of death. Why? Because of our sin. And who was it that held us captive? Satan. Satan held us captive. And what did Jesus do? He became a man. That's what it means, partaker flesh and blood. He became a man. You know why? Because flesh and blood can die. What is redemption? You know what the word redeem means? It means to pay a ransom pay a ransom do you see what happens here Jesus paid the ransom death the wages of sin is death he paid the payment to do what to deliver us to release the ransom he paid the price first Peter chapter 3 and verse 18 for Christ also hath once suffered for sins listen the just that's Jesus for the unjust that's me and you that he might bring us to God Being put to death in the flesh but quickened by the Spirit. This idea of propitiation means to appease God's wrath. It means to conciliate or to make friends again. Who brings us to God? Do you bring yourself to God? Not without Jesus you don't. You need a mediator. You need someone to stand between you and God and to bring you to God. And Jesus is the one that does that. He is our justification. He is our redeemer. He has reconciled us to God. And I tell you, that didn't happen because you're good and you're righteous. It happened because he's good and he's righteous. Notice what Romans 5 says. For when we were yet still without strength, when we were powerless, in due time Christ died for who? Good people? No, the ungodly. He says, for scarcely for a righteous man, now he's using that word the way we use that word. For a righteous man, for scarcely for a righteous man, the way we esteem a righteous man, one would die. Yet perhaps for a good man, some would even dare to die. I mean, think about that. Would you die for someone you knew was a murderer? Someone you knew who was violent and and a manipulator and, and a liar? Would you die for that person? Probably not. Would you die for somebody you thought was a good person? There's some of you in here that I'd die for without hesitation you say some of us i don't i don't know all of you that well <laughs> i'm just being honest there's some of you i wouldn't hesitate I'd, I'd step in front and take a bullet i bet there's some of you here who feel the same about others why that's not what god did he didn't look around and say well that guy's good i'll die for him that that, that guy's bad i'm not dying for him you know what god looked down and saw we're all bad we're all bad we're all ungodly we've rejected god we've rebelled against his will he says, see, God demonstrates his love toward us and that while we were still sinners, we weren't the good, the righteous person, we were sinful and ungodly. Much more then, now, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. You know what that means? Now we've been cleared of all guilt by his blood and reconciled to God, saved from his wrath. Now, I'm going to make a statement And some of you are going to maybe think that's that's pretty huge to say. I don't know that you should say that, but I want you to know something. God rescues us from himself. You say, what? That's right. God rescues us from himself. You know why? Because he has to punish sin. He has to punish sin. We're saved from what? From God's wrath. How? Through God. See, God can't compromise his justice. He will not compromise his justice. He will punish sin. And the only way That God won't punish us is to deliver us from our sin. Deliver us from our sin. Otherwise, he has no choice. See, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Isn't that peculiar? As you're reading through Isaiah 53, we see all these connections that he'd be made an offering for sin. He'd be despised and rejected. He he would take our sin. And what does it say here? It pleased the Lord to bruise him. It pleased him. Why? To make his soul an offering for sin. No, it didn't make God happy to look down and see Jesus in anguish and suffering. It pleased him because his purpose was accomplished. Because God loves you so much and knows that you can't be made righteous without him. That when he saw the anguish of the soul of Jesus Christ, he was satisfied. He was satisfied. Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you've taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. You know, as Peter stood up and he preached this sermon, he says, this was God's plan. It was God's plan. It was according to his determined purpose and foreknowledge. This wasn't plan B. It wasn't that God created man and then looked at man and said, "Uh uh-oh, he's sinful, I'll have to redeem him. No, God, before the foundation of the world, before he ever created man, knew man would sin and rebel against him. And so Jesus and the Father already had a covenant for him to come and die for the sins of man. But I want you to notice something. It did not remove their guilt just because that was according to God's plan. He said, you took him. You killed him. You killed him. When they heard this, it says they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? You know, you'd think that at this point, the answer would probably be, look, you can't be forgiven for killing God's son. That's too big. That is too big. But it wasn't. Peter said, repent. And let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises to you and to your children and to all who are far off, even as many as the Lord our God will call. Even as many as the Lord our God will call. You know, maybe earlier you were thinking, Ian, I didn't come here for this. I didn't come here for you to tell me how terrible of a person I am. I understand that. But i tell you what, knowing who we truly are helps us understand and appreciate what God's really given us. Because the truth is, it doesn't matter how bad a person you are, God can clean you, He can sanctify you, and He can glorify you through Jesus Christ, His Son. That's the truth. Even the people that murdered His Son, they were not irredeemable. They were redeemed by the blood of Jesus. Who can look at the suffering of Jesus and say, you know what, that wasn't big enough. That wasn't a sufficient payment. He went through agony, brutal, painful death stripes in number to where his blood was flowing out where his skin was torn hours of agony and someone looks at that and says yeah but that's not good enough no the payment's sufficient every sin sufficiently paid for but again we still have the question to answer does that mean everybody's righteous in the eyes of God does that mean everybody is counted righteous by God because of what Jesus did and the answer is no just as Peter told them that day, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for, listen, justification for remission of sins. Paul was told the same in Acts 22, 16, when Ananias said to him, why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized. Now listen, and wash away your sins. Wash away your sins. What do we need? We need our sin removed. Why? Because we're not righteous. We're full of sin. We need God to remove our sins. How does he accomplish that? Through baptism. So it says, no, that's a work. That's, that's a work. What verse says baptism's a work? You ever seen in the Bible where it says baptism's a work? I mean, you can go look, you won't find it. It's not in there. But people make that argument all the time. Well, what is baptism? Well, let's talk about that for a moment. First Peter chapter 3, verse 21. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What is baptism? I'll tell you what it is. It's a request. It's a request to God to do what? Not to clean the outside, not to wash dirt off our body or filth off our body, but to clean the inner man, a good conscience. And you know, don't you? If if you experience what I've experienced, when your conscience was awoken, it was dirty, wasn't it? Maybe it's dirty now. I don't know your heart. But I'll tell you this. When we appeal to God through baptism, when we call on the name of the Lord, See, that's another phrase we've, we've, we've used here, calling on the name of the Lord. We say, well, that's prayer. No, it's not. What is the name of the Lord? It's Jesus. What did Peter tell them? Repent, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus, calling on the name of the Lord. Who are we calling on here? Who are we appealing to? We're appealing to God. How? Through Jesus Christ. We're asking him, wash me, cleanse me, take away my sin. Remove this from my conscience. Colossians chapter 2, verse 11 through 13. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this first verse, but I think it'll be necessary to at least tackle it a little bit so we can understand what he's talking about. There were Jews that were telling Gentiles, you can't be saved unless you're circumcised. That's enough for us to understand this. Paul is telling these Gentiles, you don't need to be circumcised. You've already been circumcised. No, some priests did not cut flesh off your body. But what did happen is you were circumcised with a spiritual circumcision made without hands. And what was cut off was not skin. What was cut off was much more important. Because what was put off or cut off was the body of the sins of the flesh. What would you rather have? Skin cut off or sin? These Jews were saying, you need that skin cut off or you can't be saved. He says, that's not true. You're already saved because your sin has been removed. And what was that spiritual circumcision he was talking about? Look at verse 12. Buried with him in baptism in which you are also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him having forgiven you all trespasses. Now imagine taking the position that baptism is a work of righteousness, which we do. We're seeking our own righteousness. So maybe I've used this illustration here. I don't know. I preach so many places. I forget which illustration I've used. So just bear with me. Y'all know I had a, a life-saving procedure back in 2020. At least that's what the doctor told me, that they saved my life. And I have no reason to doubt them. Uh, I went to the cath lab, and they performed a surgery, and, and I went out into recovery. And imagine I go into recovery, and Toy walks in there, which she did. And I see you, and I say to her, honey, did you see what I just did? She says, what? Did you see what I just did? What did you just do? I just saved my own life. She'd go, what'd they give you in there? <laughs> you're talking crazy. I mean, too much anesthesia, too much Versed. I know something, but you're not making any sense right now. You didn't save yourself. You came here because they needed to save you. And we get that, don't we? But then we talk about baptism, we think, oh no, you're saving yourself. Well, let's read this again, verse 12. Buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in what? The working of God. You know what this is? This is faith. It's the same as us laying down an operating table and say, operate, work on me, fix me, save me, cleanse me. This is not a work. This is putting our trust in the hands of God and saying, God, you are the redeemer, you are the cleaner, so clean me. And what's the result of baptism? He says, and you being dead in your trespasses. That's what we talked about earlier, wasn't it? The death that happens through sin. He says, that's where you were. You were dead in your trespasses, but now you've been made alive with Jesus, having forgiven you all trespasses. What happens when the spiritual circumcision of baptism is performed? Remission of sins and spiritual life. For you were all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Let me ask you a question. Do you think that God will view you as righteous without putting on Jesus? Do you? Friends, I'm sorry. That's not right. You, you will not be viewed in the eyes of God as righteous without putting on his righteous son. And when does that happen? Right here. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So what does God see now? He sees you as his son. Why? Because you put on God's son. And he says, now there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. There's neither male nor female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. And if you're Christ, then you're Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Do you want to be an heir according to the promise, an heir of eternal life? The only way that's going to happen is if you put on God's son. And I'll tell you why. Let's get back to our original verse as we close. For he hath made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. What does that mean? It means when Jesus went to the cross, that God imputed our sin onto Jesus. He counted him as sinful. Was he sinful? No, he was innocent. But he counted him as sinful. Why? So he could count us as righteous. You know what matters? What really matters is how God sees you. That's what matters. Because in reality, you'll never be righteous. You won't. You'll never be righteous in reality. And that's not what matters. What matters is if God views you as righteous. He counts you as righteous. And there's only one way to be counted as righteous. And that's if the exchange takes place, is if Jesus takes your sin and you take his righteousness. Friends, are you a son of God, a child of God today? Have you been united with Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection, washed in his blood to have your sins removed, alive to God? Have you appealed to God? If you haven't, friends, I want you to know something. You will stand before God on the day of judgment without the righteousness of Jesus Christ, fully exposed. And you know what he'll see? He'll see reality. You're dirty. You're filthy. Why would you not take the righteousness of Jesus? Maybe you're here today and you are a child of God. And you've walked away from him. Maybe you've been living in rebellion. I want you to know something. Just because you've been baptized into Jesus Christ doesn't mean that God will overlook your rebellion. Because God will continue to view us as righteous. He'll count us as righteous if we live by faith. And if you've been away from God, come back to him. Come back to him today and receive cleansing and healing and pardon. As we stand and we sing, bring your sins to him.